she was beat up badly. And to me, like I said, it's the same guy. The sad thing in these kind of cases is if this was the only case that you had him on, he might have gotten away with that kind of defense. Well, even in the FBI, we call that a clue. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today electronically is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And Jim, I have to say right up front, we're all in separate places, so please forgive us if there are any little hiccups with the sound, everybody. Yes, and we did try to do it in the same place, but there were some major electronic difficulties, so we ended up doing this electronically. And we're really excited because we have one of our very favorite return guests. Hi, I'm Kevin McNeil, a former detective, uh, police department, and uh, author, and victim advocate. Well, Kevin, it's so great to have you back again on Best Case, Worst Case. Uh, The stories that you've told us in the past have been very compelling. And I don't know, Francie says some of the women who are in our audience kind of like you. (laughs) <laughs> well I, I like them too I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. thank you Francie, oh for Kevin you you're gonna have so many fans more fans every time you talk that sounds great I look forward to it <laughs> so Kevin the case that yeah. you want to talk to us about today what part of your career were you in at that time I was probably halfway through my career as a detective I was probably six years in as a detective as a special victims detective and this is after you were a police officer for how long? I was a police officer for eight years. And so I became a special victim detective after eight years on the road. And uh, at this particular point in this particular case, I had been a detective approximately six years. So I was I was still learning, but I, I kind of had gotten my feet wet a little bit. But it was um, one yeah. of those cases that stopped. 14 years in law enforcement. I guess that counts as feet wet. Don't you, Francie? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about. St- I mean, you can always still learn, Kevin. But I think at six yeah. years as a detective after road time, I'd call you seasoned. Okay, I, I take that one. <laughs> All right. So, what were you doing on the day that this particular case came in? I was on call. Uh, what that means is I was I was the only detective on duty. Uh, the other detectives were off, and uh, I was sitting at my desk on a Saturday uh, when I received a call from 
the uh, street officer stating that they had a female that was laying in the front yard, no clothes on and unconscious. Well, that's pretty horrible. I mean, yeah. so they responded to a scene. And what kind of neighborhood was this? It was a, a residential neighborhood. It wasn't in, in a bad, too bad of an area. One lady was walking to the bus stop to go to work. And when she saw the woman, I mean, the woman had no clothes on. She was laying face down in the front yard. Um, and the house was abandoned, That the yard that mm. she was in. So um, we responded to the scene once we got that call. Well, Kevin, before you talk to us about what you found when you got there, we've got quite a few listeners in Georgia, specifically in the Atlanta area. Can you orient us as to where in the city this is? Yeah, it was on Glenwood Road. Uh, Glenwood Road near Memorial Drive, um, about a mile or so from Memorial Drive. So it was in the city of Decatur uh, in that particular area. Okay. And so you guys respond to this call. And could you just, I mean, our listeners are pretty savvy. They listen to a lot of crime. But can you just explain when you get a call, what does that mean? Are you literally getting a phone call? Do you receive an email? Or how do you actually get the information that you respond to? Yeah, normally... Uh, someone calls 911 and a dispatch officer goes to the scene. Uh, once the officer gets there, they see what they have and they call uh, the appropriate detective. In this case, because she was nude, uh, she was laying unconscious, uh, they called me, which is a sexual assault detective. Uh, the presumption was that she had been sexually assaulted and a body dumped in the yard. So once the officer calls me, I get a location from them and then I get in my detective car and I drive out to the location. Do you go by yourself, Kevin? On that particular day, I did because I was um, I was the only detective in the office at that particular day. Uh, on any normal day where other detectives are in the office, we try to send a team of detectives out so we can kind of figure out uh, how we're going to canvas the scene and try to get information from people in the neighborhood. And when you said a body, so yes. this woman was splayed out on the front lawn of a residential house, an abandoned place. Yeah. And she was dead? She wasn't. The the, the initial uh, response from the officer, they thought she was dead. However, when EMS responded, uh, I got there about the same, uh, almost right after they got there, and they were loading her up, and they said they had a pulse. But she was beaten really bad. I guess the officer looked at her, took one look at her, and just assumed she was dead. Well, A, uh, they shouldn't be doing that, right? Yeah, I mean, he yeah. should be checking Definitely. for pulse and open airway, right? Definitely. I mean. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Okay. Well, in the future, I hope that officer doesn't assume death and actually gets involved right away because that's the job of a first responder, right? That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you got there right around the time the EMS got there and the, they found a pulse. Yeah. What did they do at that point? They loaded her up and told her, told me that they need to get to the hospital right away. And, um, I agreed, and I did call some additional help out uh, from the office supervisor, let them know I may be needing help because uh, I knew uh, that we had a pretty serious scene, and so I didn't know if it, if she was going to make it. So I began to call the office to try to get other detectives. In the meanwhile, I wanted to canvass the neighborhood. Found I wanted to find out who house that was and why that particular house. Well, and Kevin, it seems to me that, like you say, you don't know if she's going to make it. So these are the first few minutes after uh, someone's discovered in what could become a murder case. So 
you can't assume she's going to survive. You have to treat it as though it could be a murder case, right? Exactly, exactly. And I knew it was going to be a difficult case from the beginning. Uh, we had no ID. Uh, of course, she wasn't talking. Uh, and I was in a particular neighborhood where people wasn't too uh, fond of talking to the police. Uh, so, and that was a business, like a car business, uh, auto mechanic business right across the street. Had no cameras in the area, but it was right at the intersection of two, of a major highway. So I just knew someone had saw something. Uh, so when we began to canvas and people said they saw nothing, we tried to figure out what time was she dumped there. Because when we looked at the grass, there was no drag marks, right? It looked like someone just dumped her there. Uh, mm. And so when we went up in the house and thought maybe it occurred in the house and she crawled out onto the lawn. That wasn't the case because the doors were still secured and we called the homeowner and said that the house had been vacant for a while. And there was no point of entry where something was broken into. It was still tightly shut. And so uh, I was stumped at that point. Yeah, well, that sounds like a serious mystery and the kind of thing that a seasoned detective might be needed for. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. but I got to tell you, Jim, I was stumped. I I didn't feel seasoned at the moment because I didn't know what to do at that time, to be honest with you, because no one knew. All right, but I have a feeling you did something even though you didn't know what to do. I did. I did. And what did you do next? Yeah. And so she was, she was a white female and, and nobody in the neighborhood had ever seen her before. And so what I tried to do was find out, did she have any relatives or anybody that was in the area that she was close to? Uh, at first, nobody came up. She had no ID on her. Um, and so what I had to do was find out where did she come from. Uh, so I canvassed that area pretty good. I took a picture of her, even though her face was pretty messed up. Uh, nobody in that area said they knew her. Um, I did get a break in the case uh, when I went to the hospital. I think there was a nurse that said that she had been at that hospital before. Uh, oh. Yeah, so I found out she was actually hanging around or known in the, the Atlanta, the Fulton County area, which is outside of my jurisdiction. So that made the case even more difficult. Can I ask, what did you find out what she was in the hospital for before? I think it was nothing serious. She was going, she got sick. Uh, of course, you know, with HIPAA, they wouldn't tell me what exactly it was. But one of the nurses was familiar with her. She was at Grady Hospital. So a lot of people come to Grady, I guess, when they need medicines or when they need some care. Um, but it wasn't anything crime related. Well, and, and Kevin, one of the interesting things, I think, is that Grady Hospital is the only level one trauma center in the southeast. And they always say if you get shot or burned or beaten, you so want to go true. to Grady. Otherwise, so stay away from it, Grady. Yeah. <laughs> Why stay away? Because you're afraid to get shot? No, no. I mean, because they are a yeah. level one trauma center. And so that's what they do best. They do that kind of trauma best. But if you, you know, need cancer treatment or uh, some sort of, you know, gallbladder surgery, it's not really yeah. Grady yeah. that you want and to so, go to. Uh, what I did next, I had to find out who she was. And so the, the hospital personnel told me that she may be a woman who worked the streets uh, in Fulton County. So I took the picture and I knew a particular area where it was popular at the time for women who uh, walked the streets at night. And I started asking around. First day I did it, you know, I didn't know how to get anywhere. I was walking around with a badge and a suit, you know, <laughs> so people was like, no, nah, we're not talking to you. So mm-hmm. I knew I had to kind of dress down and kind of like get people more comfortable with me. 
Well, Kevin, this is such an important point. It's so interesting that you say that because obviously uh, drug addicts and women who walk the streets, otherwise oftentimes known as prostitutes, um, those kind of people are victims of crime too. And I think that's something that the public doesn't necessarily think about. And that is your job is harder, but also you have to be more adaptive in order to solve a crime when you've got a victim in like a marginalized community like that. Because uh, one of the things people look at you as law enforcement, you come in to just extract information. And if they help you, they may put themselves in danger. Um, so, and being that I was in a different jurisdiction, I was in Fulton County, uh, with people not familiar with the Atlanta area, there's multiple different police agencies and jurisdictions in close proximity. And we don't always know what's happening in one county to another. So when I found that out to me, that was a, that was a break in the case for me, even though I still had little information that was still a break for me. And so I went and I did old fashioned police work. I, uh, threw on a t-shirt and small jeans and covered up my badge and, and parked the car and mm. got to walking. Where did you walk? I walked over uh, Cleveland Avenue. I don't know if people are familiar with that area. Cleveland Avenue um, in Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, over in that area uh, near the airport. Those were some areas over there that was known that I had known during my course of police work where a lot of street walkers had walked. And sure enough, when I drove over there, they were, they were still walking out on the street, you know. And so Facebook and Backpage weren't that big of a thing then. People were still doing it the old-fashioned way, walking out on the street. So I approached a couple people, and the first couple people didn't know uh, the picture that I showed them, but it was one female. Uh, she was a white female also. When I showed her the picture, she grabbed the mouth and almost teared up mm. and, and I asked her, did she know her? And she said, of course I know her. And it's amazing how fast news travels. They had already known that she was at Grady. And so when I asked her who she was, she just gave me mm. a nickname. But then she pointed to me to, to other people that may have known her. And so I went and other people gave me more information on it. We were finally able to get in contact with her family and found out a history, you know. And how long after you first arrived on the scene was this now that you finally identified her and were able to reach out to her family? Yeah, this was about a week. So it took some time. It took some some time um, because we didn't know who she was. And, of course, you know, we had to presume there was a sexual assault since she had on no clothes. And so we did DNA tests, sexual assault kit, and all that was done. Right. I was going to ask you, so what evidence did you get from the hospital in terms of yeah. what was – what was the crime? It was a sexual assault. We, we could tell by the bruises between her legs and she was beating real. She was beating real bad. You had, she had like uh, marks around her neck. Whoever it was tried to strangle her. Oh, man. Um, and so the, we found out that there was bruising uh, in a vagina area. And so when we did the sexual assault kit, we got back a result. It was inconclusive. And that kind of like really like stuck me like I was at a standstill at that point. When you say inconclusive, what do you mean by that? You were conclusively sure that there was a sexual assault. You just couldn't. I was. I was. Yeah. I, they just didn't have a sample of DNA that would pinpoint one person. And right. So, so what was inconclusive was the finding of DNA evidence to try to identify an offender. Exactly. And so, and, and you know, as sexual assault detectives, that's one thing that we hope comes true. So that helps us pinpoint the person who could be responsible for this. Right. But so, in this case, it's going back to 
regular detective work, isn't it? Going back to regular detective work. So it's going back to do your thing, you know, use your season, your experience, and asking around, asking other people for advice. And also, what I did do, now I knew, I went back and I started tracing backwards. Did I have any similar cases prior to this that mm. was similar in? Because I know suspects operate a certain way. They don't change up much. So then why do you do that? Why why is that, Kevin? Why do you go back and look for other similar cases in the area? Because for me, suspects always talk through their victims. They always say what they want to say through their victims. This woman was beaten badly. She was abandoned. So in my mind, were there any woman treated in similar ways? Uh, some detectives wait until they talk to the suspect. I never wait till I talk to the suspect. I listen to what they tell me about the crimes they commit and how they commit. Mm. So uh, that's why I go back and see if they were in it. Because most, in my experience, most perpetrators, particularly the stereotype, they don't change up much. They use the same methodology in committing their crimes. So you're talking about M.O. Yeah. And sometimes signature, right? Is it, it is signature, yes. And with this particular person, they you could tell they were violent to discard her body in the open like that. Like it wasn't like you were trying to hide it. You could have took her anywhere and hit her. You put it right there in the open for people to see it as if almost you were trying to make a statement or you wanted her to be found. I don't know which one it was. Right. Well, I mean, clearly it's not very um, high on the level of respect for women, no, I would say. Yeah. And and also maybe. Thumbing your nose at law enforcement. Exactly. And that's what I was thinking. So when I went back into my computer, I wanted to know if there were any cases. And I realized about four months earlier, I worked a case in that same area, it was it was more so off of uh, Covington Highway near Glenwood, where a female uh, jumped out of a moving car. Uh, she, mm. she was a streetwalker. Oh. She stated that she had gotten into a car with this guy, and when she had gotten in his car, he had started beating her while he was driving. And he pulled over, and he told her that you're going to, you know, give me some sex. And she said he just started beating her and beating her. And she said, finally, you know, she tried to get out the car. He drove off again. And she said the only way she knew she was going to get away was jump out. So she jumped out of a moving car. So I went back and talked to her. From mm. her, I was able to get a vehicle description and a, and a description of a male. Well, so, Kevin, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but, um, well, obviously I do because I am. <laughs> but what, what, one of the things that strikes me is a few minutes ago, I was thinking to myself, oh, I know who probably beat this woman mm -hmm. up. But, of course, now I'm thinking something different. Yeah. and. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the dynamics of uh, women who are sex workers, yes. at least those who are voluntary sex mm -hmm. workers. I know you've had cases where women like that seek treatment and are often beaten up or uh, violence is perpetrated on them by their pimp. Exactly. Although they rarely talk about yeah. it, they may say, oh, it's not my pimp. Yeah. It's actually this other guy, even though the other guy doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So, how do you account for yeah. that in a case like this? That was one of the things I was thinking, too. But again, since we couldn't talk to her, the ladies on the street, when I went and did the canvas in the Atlanta area, they provided information that there was no pimp, uh, that, that she worked alone. And they would say some things like she had a mouth on her. She wouldn't get in a car with anybody. So they was kind of giving me her characteristics. And so one of the ways I kind of tried to figure out, I didn't I didn't 
totally uh, dismissed that idea that it could have been someone who was trying to traffic her or pimp her that got angry with her and beat her up. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I saw this similar pattern of this, this person who this lady jumped out the car, so I pulled that case. And so I'd open it back up because it was suspended because we didn't have enough evidence to move forward with it. Uh, and so when I did that, kind of got a, a vehicle description. Uh, when I got that vehicle description, got a male description and found out that there was a male who had a uniform on, a work uniform on. And so I started looking around in the area for people who worked in that area and didn't really have any luck there at first. What kind of work uniform were you talking about? The female didn't describe particularly what kind, but she said it was a uniform. It was some like he worked somewhere where he had to wear a uniform. So he could have worked for like the power company or been a mechanic or something like that. Exactly. And so about two weeks later, in that same area, we had another sexual assault. And and, and, and what got me to thinking that this was the same guy, it was off into a, 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 a wooded area where you had to drive through a wooded area. And that was this empty house. Mm. And he brutally raped this woman. I mean, he beat her. And we was able to talk to her. And she was saying he was just saying uh, degrading things to her and told her that he was going to kill her. And, and uh, she told us he used a condom, but he was just beating her. And she said even when he she gave in to him, he was still beating her. She was saying it, it, she didn't understand why he kept beating her, even though he, he was raping her at the same time. OK, so what I'd like to do is ask you a few questions to see what kind of rape typology this guy fits into. Yeah. Have you actually tried to type this rapist i did this guy i was trying to figure out you know what was his animosity towards women right and but did you did you look at for example so you know and this is certainly not a power reassurance type rapist right this is not somebody who you know doesn't use violence may threaten with a weapon but actually considers the rape a date this yeah. is somebody oh, yeah. who is either an anger retaliatory rapist or oh, an anger excitation rapist, right? Oh, because he yeah, is definitely, yeah. this is yeah. somebody who is as part and parcel of his MO. He's beating and causing physical pain and suffering to his victims. Yeah. And it's how he's choosing his victim. Like you said, he thinks that they, he's getting them voluntarily into the vehicle. Because they're they're women of the night who work the street, so he he's he's looking for easy targets who will get in the car with him and go places with him. So it probably would have been nothing for this lady, this last victim, to drive up in a, a wooded area near an abandoned house. But my point was being he had to know what that house was there because walking from the street, the road, you would have never known that house was in that area. And so yeah, he was definitely one of those ones who who liked to pick a particular type of victim. Uh, these victims being you know women who walk the street. And he knew he could get him in the car voluntarily and probably thought that they wouldn't be treated with any respect because of what they did mm. and thought nobody even cared about what happened to them. Right. And so his his demeanor of treating them was almost like he didn't think nothing of them, like they were no good people to him. He was ridding, ridding the streets of them is kind of how I profiled him. That he was he felt like maybe he was doing a, a service. Right. So that to me sounds like an anger retaliatory rapist, Um, somebody who actually the rape is punishment for who these women are. They're not what they should be. And he's going to prove to them 
by beating them, he's going to prove to them that they are bad people. And yeah. in fact, it it obviously it makes no sense because he's raping them. Okay, so who is he to tell women that they're bad for having sex with men when he's raping them and beating them at the same time? I mean, obviously, it's not logic. It's obviously not right. It's not correct. It's totally messed up. But in his mind, he's doing it because he's punishing his victims. Yes. And that's so true. And it, it was it was very troubling for me as an investigator, as a detective, to see um, these women get treated like that and, and kind of have very little leads to go off of. Uh, but each time a female was attacked, I got something more uh, from like this last victim who he beat and, and he let her live. And he told her that he was going to let her live. Um, and she was reluctant to call the police. Uh, but she was walking down the street staggering. I think somebody pulled over and saw her and called the police because she really wasn't going to report it. So, Kevin, you said this last victim. How yeah. many then in this series of what you were suspecting was a serial rape? How, how many victims did that make? This will be the third one. This will be the third one. And now, you know, I'm putting it together that this, since it's in the same area. So now I'm trying to figure out, does this guy work in this area because he knows it? He knows the area. And the first female that we found in the yard, he picked her up from Atlanta. So I was kind of confused that the last two victims, it happened in that area. So he was familiar with that area. So to to put that white female in the, in the front yard that was from Atlanta in that yard, I'm thinking now maybe he worked in Atlanta or maybe he just went to Atlanta on that particular day. Um, and so my next thing I needed to do was uh, try to figure out if um, – I could try to get some type of tag information by the car description. Uh, and I knew that was going to be hard, but I didn't have anything. So uh, I know it was a SUV. It was a, a white SUV uh, I knew about. And it was an older model. It wasn't a newer model. This is what the last victim gave me. She said it was a box out. And the way she used it, <laughs> I hate to say it, but she did say she referenced the OJ right. type uh, vehicle. Mm. Uh so that was very unique for me. Um, and so as I'm working that case and trying to figure out, you know, does anybody know anybody with that type of vehicle, that type of work? And she said it was a work vehicle. She started talking about how junky it was uh, when she got up in there. So details like that that she was able to give kind of helped me out a little bit. I knew what type of vehicle the guy I was looking for probably worked. So now I'm trying to profile him and figure out, OK, what time of day. So now I'm looking at times he's doing this. Um, which was mostly late at night. What type of job wears a uniform where you get off late at night? Um, and so um, got stuck there. And then I would say about, I want to say about three weeks later, I got a call. Uh, I was just about to get off work and I was headed home. And, you know, it's one of those things where the radio goes off and you hope the own call guy get it overnight. But I was the one who got it. I answered the radio. And there was a female who was sexually assaulted at a nightclub. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. And so the nightclub was closed. And so when I went there, um, she was sitting outside the nightclub and she was beat up badly. And immediately I said, it's the same guy. So she gave me the same story. We went in the club, got a search warrant and blood was everywhere. He, he had assaulted her. And we asked how to get in the club. And she said he had keys. <gasps> yeah. I said, jeez. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, 
even in the FBI, we call that a clue. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. She said, yeah, he picked me up, and he said he had to stop by his job because he had to clean up the bar. He was responsible for cleaning the club. The owner gave him the keys. So I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, he owns his own business. He cleans businesses for a living. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay. And then she said, when they left the club, he was going to put her back in the car, but she snatched away from him. And he tried to run her over, but she was running like over the median and through the parking lot. And she said he kept running his car over the median on the parking lot. And she said he wrecked it. And so we walk out the club and we get to walk around the club. That's this abandoned white SUV in the parking lot with four flat tires. Wow. That, that with bent rims and everything. So now I had a vehicle, I had a tag number, I had no suspect. So, of course, I had to call the owner of the club and find out who this person was. And so we found out who he was. And we was able to get the tag number and bring him in. And so that's how I was able to solve that one. That was, wow. uh, yeah. So when you found him, like, where was he? What, did you go out and arrest him? Tell us about it. It was funny. The owner who gave him the keys had a contact number for him. And so he called them. I said, don't you call them. We want to call them. But of course, you know, he did what we told him not to do. Um, and so when he called us back, he said, well, hey, he asked, is y'all going to tow his truck? I said, why did you call him? We told you don't call him. And I said, since you did call him, tell him, yeah, we're going to tow his truck. And he was more concerned about his truck. And I told him to- more concerned about his truck than being accused of being a rapist. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So I told him if he come get his truck. We won't tow it. So, of course, he came in and we placed him on arrest. But of course, his his story was that she tried to rob him, um, mm-hmm. that he picked her up and he was fighting her off and that she had picked up some bottle in the club and tried to cut him with it. And yeah, how did he get in the how did she get in the club? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So so her story, you know, was he picked her up. She admitted that she was a streetwalker and that he picked her up and he wanted to go somewhere with her and said he know where they can have drinks. He said, you know, I go clean this club, I got access to the bar, and you could see where he actually was pouring drinks for them and let let them have drinks or whatever. And so I guess it got to the point where he was gonna make his move and you could see the struggle. You I mean, she fought this guy. I mean, this place was tore up. It was it was just mm. tore up. And you could see they had like a stage, it was blood like everywhere where she was running from. You see behind the bar mm-hmm. where she knocked over everything and and uh, I believe if she wouldn't have got away, this probably would have been the one that he probably was going to probably murder. Yeah. Well, and Kevin, you know, it's interesting that that he says, of course, that it was self-defense in some way. I mean, that's basically yeah. what he was trying to tell you. Exactly. And I do think, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but the sad thing in these kind of cases is if this was the only case that yeah. you had him on, he mm-hmm. might have gotten away with that kind of defense. Oh, yeah. With a oh, woman yeah. who admits to being a prostitute. I mean, oh, as a practical matter, juries do not believe those kind of people. It's wrong. Exactly. But exactly. that's how juries think. Yeah. And, you know, and the thing was, too, I knew I had to tie him to the other ones. Could I tie him to the other with the without the one with DNA that was laying in the front yard? I knew he wasn't going to admit. And the one that jumped out of the car, the one I went back on, uh, she couldn't pick him out of a photo lineup. But the one that he took no. in the abandoned house behind the woods reluctantly she cooperated and she picked him out. And the unfortunate part, I couldn't tie him to the woman that was found in the yard and she never came out to coma. <gasps> yeah, oh, she that's never, so terrible. She never came out to coma and I think her family made a decision. 
So uh, I think once that happened, it was transferred over to the homicide division. Wow. Yeah. But it's clear that you most likely solved that case. Yes, because they stopped. Once once I arrested him, uh, those assaults stopped. Well, and that's good evidence. That is good evidence that a good prosecutor will use to argue that he's the offender among the other, whatever the other evidence is. But that's actually great evidence that the assaults stop when you get the guy in handcuffs. Exactly. And, you know, during the interview, he would admit that, you know, uh, when he got off work, uh, he picked up women. Um, And that's why he was he was able to do so, because he was responsible for going and cleaning certain businesses. And did he ever say why he was so angry at women? He did. He claimed on this last one that he fought in the club. He said that she tried to rob him and even interviewing him. He, You can hear him just degrading her and said, I didn't know she was a prostitute. You know, she got in there talking about money. I need my money. And I told her I don't do that. And so she grabbed a bottle and she tried to assault me and rob me. And so that's when I defended myself. So, uh, But he never explained what he felt about women and how he felt, but he was a single guy, older, mm-hmm. uh, stayed alone. Wow. So he never came and, and out clean and said why he was so violent uh, toward women. But he got convicted. Yes, definitely. Um, on that one at the well, club, no, it was the one at the club. And again, yeah, but still, yeah. I mean, like Francie said, just getting that conviction that by itself would have been really difficult. Oh yeah, so oh I'm yeah, glad. definitely. And and it w- it took a lot of, like I said, from from the one body in the yard to probably bring him to justice took a couple of months, but it was well yeah. worth the work. And do you know what his sentence was? Do you remember? I don't remember what his sentence was. I want to say it was thirty. Yeah, violent a violent rape like that, Kevin, that makes sense to me because mandatory minimum rape back then was still 10 years. And so yeah. in Georgia, um, you know, a violent guy like that assaulting a woman with those kinds of injuries, I'm not surprised the judge threw the book at him. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was a lot. It was a lot because I think he had some priors, uh, domestic priors, domestic violence. Well, that's another thing really? I looked at. Uh, he had this wow. pattern of violence and so and he had a couple felonies so it wasn't like this guy was you know right so you know that kind of explains his job too where he created his own business cleaning out buildings so you know that's probably the only way he was going to get into work with his record his felony record uh right but yeah it it was a learning experience so kevin Mm -hmm. we have to ask is this best case in your mind or worst case and why you know that's kind of kind of hard to answer based on what I was able to get. I would say it, it was it was my best case um, because I was able to get justice. When some detectives, uh, personally, I know would have looked at that situation, particularly who the victims were, and probably would have not worked as hard um, to find justice for them, thinking that maybe you know um, the work didn't warrant you know the person who who the victim of the crime well damn i mean yeah good lord yeah that is a damn shame but i'm so glad that you are not that kind of detective and that you did put in as much effort as you would have in any other case with any other victim yes that's why me and francie love you so much appreciate it jim i love you all too ditto kevin Well, Kevin, that's fantastic. Just congratulations. I know that you've gotten lots of awards and accolades in your career, but um, on behalf of the citizens of the state of Georgia and really the rest of the country, for that matter, thank you, because you, you worked hard to get dangerous criminals like that scumbag off the streets. 
Yes, Francis. I'm so glad that I was in a position to do so. It, it really gives me joy at night to know that, you know, I was able to get somebody like that off the street. That's great. Well, thank you again, Kevin, for sharing with us these amazing and heart-wrenching cases from your career. And hopefully we'll have you back again soon yes, to tell us some more stories from the life and times of Kevin McNeil, detective. <laughs> I look forward to it, Jim and Francie. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Take care, man. All right. Well, it's been so great listening to your stories, Kevin. Thanks again for coming on. And until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.